Hey everybody, welcome to the latest Pop Theology Conversation, Pop Theology Interview. I think this is one of the few that we've done a recording of. Most of the interviews that we do with filmmakers and writers, um, we, we kind of write those out. We've only done a couple, I think, uh, via Skype or in-person interviews. And we're doing one of those today, and we are absolutely thrilled to have filmmaker, artist, author Phil Harrison with us, uh, an all-around great human being who's based in Belfast and is joining us from Belfast. Welcome, Phil. Hi. Hi from Belfast. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Phil, I've known you for a couple of years, and this is the first time you've been on an interview like this with us. I think we talked a bit, or we wrote about your film, The Good Man, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but we're delighted to have you here, and we're going to talk a lot about your latest work, which is a novel, The First Day. But before we do that, I thought we could dive into kind of a description of the work you've done so far in film and maybe talk a little bit about your experience with spirituality, faith, or theology, because that's kind of a central theme to the work we do here. Before we dive into a discussion of the novel, if that sounds okay with you. That sounds great. Great. And, yeah, and before we do that, I just want to say that we're separated by an ocean, but we're uh, joined together by a love of beer. And that's a good <laughs> we, way to put we, it, right? It's a perfect way to put it. Yeah, so I'm, I, have I have the justification of eight hours uh, later than you. So yeah, um, you're the day. You're you're in the nighttime. You started this. We started this conversation. We're starting this conversation at you know one forty ish p.m. Pacific Coast time, which means yeah. you're like what nine forty going on ten o'clock at night in Ireland. 9:40. It would be rude for me not to be having a beer right it now. Would be, I didn't want to. I didn't want to stereotype. You know. I but <laughs> uh, it feels way. So I've you know, Phil, you guilted me into no, like Danny Bay has to guilt me into it. But so I've cracked open a cold one and I'm drinking and you know to put in a plug for what I think is one of the best breweries in Los Angeles, uh, which is where I'm based. Uh, I'm drinking The Business, which is a double IPA from Highland Park Brewery, just a few a few miles away from my house. What are you drinking, Phil? Well, I'm not as radical to drink a double IPA, but um, <laughs> there's a, <laughs> I have a friend uh, who runs a brewery in Belfast called Boundary. It's a cooperatively owned brewery, makes some of the best beer in Ireland, called Matthew Dick, who's also actually a theologian and uh, kind, he's kind of a theologian. Um, so I think you should come and have a conversation with him sometime. But I'm drinking Mongo, which is a, a West Coast style IPA. I'm about to move on because, as you say, it's 940. Um, yeah. So, so uh, you know, at least it's entirely the second one. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm about to move on to an East Coast IPA, which is called Forever Ago. Um, both very good beers. Oh, Forever Ago. That's a great name for a beer. Yeah, that's right. I, I've got to get to it's, Belfast to meet this. Uh, it's murky and it's it's a uh, it's a proper a proper East Coast murky beer. These, so good. That, that is a style of beer that, that seems to be taking over the industry in the States uh, by storm. Um, and there are a couple of breweries, Highland Park being one of them, although I wasn't drinking one. Highland Park and then Mumford, who are both just killing that kind of New England style, East Coast style IPA. It's become one of my favorites. Uh, so it's great to hear that 
that's on your side of the pond as well. Well, I will also look forward to my box arriving from you. Um, yeah, we talked about that. I think um, if there are any people who work at the post office who are listening to this, you need to like skip forward 15 seconds because we're talking about <laughs> mailing beer across the pond, which have you done that before? Is that can we do that? I mean, it's surely possible. Okay. All right. We'll ask for forgiveness and not permission. That's the way to do it. Okay. Uh, Phil, I want to jump in. One of, one of the first ways that I got to meet you was through a mutual friend of ours, Trip Fuller, or maybe a couple of mutual friends, Trip Fuller, Pete Rollins. And at least Trip introduced me to you. He was like, hey, there's this really kick-ass uh, Irish guy who's a filmmaker and a great thinker about all things like philosophical and spiritual, theological that you really need to meet. And you had just come off your, I believe it's your first feature, right? Uh, the Good Man. That's right. So let, I want to talk a little bit about that, and then we'll dive into uh, some more of your work, and then we'll get to a conversation about the first day. Sound good? Perfect. Anchor in Ireland who essentially causes somebody's death in an accident and his life begins to unravel. And at the same time, we see this story of this kid living in a township in South Africa who just wants to escape, just wants to get to a better life. But the context that he's in um, sort of brings him to a, a political coming of age and ties him to his context in a way that he's not altogether happy with. And these stories run and you don't really see, you don't know why you're seeing these two different things until they collide at a certain point. Like it's a film I'm proud of. It's a film I think is quite flawed in some ways, but I think that's inevitable when you look back after that's five years now ago I, I, I made that. I think there are limitations within it, but I, I, I still think it has a, an energy and a character and a truth um, within it. And even just, as you say, like the con- making, a, making a feature film across two continents in two weeks for £100,000 isn't bad. It's still a very good film. And I think you, as a creator, you're always going to judge it more harshly than you know the rest of us. Um, but it's one that knowing those things that you talk about, the creative process, and and again, it's always problematic, I think, to talk about films and their relationship to their budget, but not when it comes to a film like that, which really feels like it's it costs way more than that, right? And I think that's just a testament to your skill and the team that you put around you to tell the story in the way that you did, and it and it I think it holds up and will continue to do so. And some of those themes I think that you talk about are in the uh, and the novel that we're going to talk about in a little bit. I think it's I, like I'd love to see that film find even more space than it has already. You know, like I think it's a kind of film that is not going to age badly. I, I don't think it's going to look dated because I don't think the context that's engaging is ever going to disappear. Unfortunately, not. Unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that the, the particular angle that the film is is taking. It's not an issues film. It's not a film about, you know, a political issue. It's a film about two people who are so embedded both in their own contexts and because of the way, you know, the world works in each other's lives, whether whether they know it or not, I, I think that that is never going to be irrelevant, you know. So, um, yeah. I think the beauty yeah. of it is that story works in any location. Um, it works with any – insert any political issue – what you've done is that there is a politic to your film or to this film, um, mm-hmm. but it is not defined by that, right? It transcends to talk about that kind of 
more universal, probably deeper spiritual connection between two people who happen to be part of those uh, respective countries, economic systems, things like that. Yeah, I like that. I like that way of putting it. I think it, it, there's definitely a politics to the film, but but the film's not defined by the politics. The film's defined by the characters, right. and as you say, that's right. Those characters could be different places, and and um, yeah, I, I uh, yeah, I think that's true. I like that. I like that way of putting it. And and you have also created, although I did, I didn't see this on IMDb, and I don't know that it's possible for us Americans to find. Um, and if it is, I, that'd be great. We can share that in the links um, with the with the post that goes along with this interview. But the last time I saw you, you had just completed a a short documentary in which you visited Iran with a friend of yours. Yeah, that's right. Um, so <laughs> that was a little film made for the BBC. Um, I have a friend in Ireland called Fabian Bekharasani. Um, not a common Irish name. Uh, right. His his father fled Iran or was 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 um, sent away by his father um, during the revolution and ended up, God help him, in in Northern Ireland. <laughs> so um, out of the Iranian revolution into the troubles, uh, and but he stayed. He liked it, and and Fabian grew up here, always having this Iranian identity, but never having been to Iran and so we just got we got chatting um we got friendly actually and then we got chatting about uh, he wanted to go back him and a very good friend of his Nathan Reed decided they wanted to go to Iran and they asked me would I come and make a film about it and essentially it was it was Fabian going home but to a home he'd never been so it's a very simple little film there's nothing very clever about it but um but it's quite moving and and it you know, I, I'm I'm obsessively interested in otherness and the way that we create otherness. And um, you know, Freud talks about the narcissism of the small difference. You put two people who are almost identical together, and they'll work out where they're different. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I I think we have these tendencies, good or bad, to find the differences between one another. And and yet, and this I don't mean this in a wishy-washy liberal kind of way but there are a lot of similarities between people and and explore those and hold those and keep those alive then you know there, there's connections that are extraordinary so i, I find iran an, an incredible place to visit um very very generous intelligent funny people um and not without its problems. I'm not, you know, I'm not closing my eyes to the nature of the government there and so on, which I think is definitely problematic. Um, but there are people, there are a, a huge number of people in that country who are going about their lives in fascinating, interesting, engaging, generous ways. And it was a, it was a brilliant experience to go and, and experience that even a little, in a little way. And I think the film captures some of that, you know. Yeah, and I think... Um I mean, you may or may not know, I mean, you've traveled extensively in the U.S., so you know, you know, our media and our news media thrive on othering, right? Yeah. And that's why I think uh, you shared that short film with me and why I found it so compelling is that it does what real life experience and what traveling does, which is to de-other the other, right? Like, 
you do realize that we all have far more in common than we have a different. So watching that film and watching those relationships unfold and watching people reflect on journey and going home, it's something that we all know in a way. Um, and to see a country, especially here in America, that is only ever radicalized um, in a very non-radical way was is something that I wish more people could see here in the States. Yeah, I, I like that. Well, I mean, I'm happy to share that. I'll, I'll, there's, I'm sh- I think it's online somewhere. Um, the BBC had for a while, but it's now our film, so we can do what we want with it, essentially. So I'll, I'll certainly share that, and, and any of your listeners can can have a watch. That would be great to great. see that going on. And yeah. talk, in terms of otherness, I think that's really, I mean, that's something I'm particularly interested in, actually, creatively, that I think there's almost two things you can do with otherness, or two ways of approaching it. One is the one you've described, where you, you, you know, you de-other the other, you realize you recognize that the other is not so other or is not the other that you've been, that has been described to you. So that's one way of doing it. But there's another, and I actually think it's almost more important and I'm kind of even more interested in this, which is the problem with that sometimes is that, that there's something very, very human about the need to create otherness. In other words, there's something we can't bear in ourselves. And so we have to project that onto the other. There, there has, somebody else has to take that. So the problem with trying to, the other the other sometimes is that there is like there is otherness it does exist but quite often it's been created by us out of something we can't bear in ourselves so the other approach to, to otherness is to recognize oneself as other yeah to recognize the, the the weirdness the strangeness the uncanniness of oneself great artists do this great artists take the familiar the things that are familiar to us and they make them seem strange to us or they take the, fami- the familiar us and make ourselves seem strange to ourselves. And there's a tremendous generosity in that because you realize if you really embrace that, I think that you don't then need to create the other by projecting that, that thing. If you can bear it in yourself, then the otherness of the other is not so scary anymore because you're also other. One way of, you know, one way of dealing with others is to say that the other is not really other. Right, like the other's not really different, and in some ways that's what the Iran film does, and I think there's a value in that. But an even better way, perhaps, is to recognize oneself as other. So the other might be other, but so am I. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. Well, you know, like there seems to yeah. be a profound spiritual maturity in this, and I think it's you've pointed out it's a hallmark of artists. I think it's also a hallmark of some of some of the most profoundly spiritual and theological thinkers and and maybe movers and actors in history, right? Is this comfort with oneself and, and not uh, and not being afraid of, quote-unquote, the other? I think it's a difficult balance to find. Like, I think judgment, as, as I've described, is often a way of projecting outside of oneself the thing that you can't bear in yourself. So what you do by putting it out into the world and, and judging it is you're able to do something to it that you can't physically do to yourself because you would, you know, it would be too destructive and it's a really terrible way to live. Having said that, I think that, I think that the critical job is still really important. Like I, I would want to be critical of Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Christianity, uh, atheism, <laughs> you know, give me an ism or an Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Want to have a go, you know, yeah. not because I want to destroy everything, but because I think that, well, I, I think we'll come on to this probably, but because I think authority hides in strange places. And, and if you can't name your God, your God owns you. And that I don't know that that's a great space to be in. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I want to back up a second and 
uh, before we dive into the to the novel. Can you can you talk a bit about your background with or experiences with theology, spirituality, faith, whatever you would want to call it? You've already referenced a uh, doing a degree in literature and theology, and just the way you talk about relationships and uh, being human in the world, it points at some at least familiarity with some pretty you know larger than life concepts that, that not a lot of people think about. So I wonder if you could talk about how you've begun to wrestle with or think about some of these things and that maybe in that journey. Sure. I mean, uh, I grew up in a very, I grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Uh, I grew up as a Protestant, evangelical, conservative, but very working class context, a little mission hall. There was no minister or pastor. Um, so in theory, at least anyone could share what they uh, felt God was putting in their mind or heart. Anyone, anyway, who was male, <laughs> of course. Um, so the problem begins <laughs> very early. Yeah. But the, the context was essentially this strangely conservative and yet strangely um, kind of counter-cultural or counter-authoritarian space. It was, there was both a kind of literalism when it came to the text Um you know, the, the, the love for the Bible replaced any anything that you would have for a minister or a pastor, which is kind of extraordinary, you know. And it was the, it was the old King James Version. It was no new fancy versions. This was this was this poetic, messy, um, complicated, but ultimately very beautiful text or series of texts. And so I grew up in this context. I grew up, you know, believing that I needed to believe, you know, accept Jesus as my personal savior or I would go to hell and not go to heaven. Very simplistic, but still very compelling idea of the world. Um, and I, I kind of, I got to my teens. I began to question a lot of that. By the time I reached my late teens, I had begun to abandon most of the theology of that but not the idea of a God who sides with the poor. And I had this, I suppose, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know how I would describe it other than an intuition that I would now be able to describe. I don't think I'd be able to say this at the time, but I had an intuition that there is something in the language and practice of faith that once you abandon, you lose and what I mean by that is that that there is a way of seeing the world and of acting in the world that is embedded in the practices, the um, the theologies, the lang not necessarily the theology, the language, um, the rituals of faith. Um, and for me, as I I abandoned some of those, which I find problematic. I began to read the, 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 the contradictions of the scriptures in very different ways, in real ways, to recognize. And ironically, what I would say is I began to take the Bible seriously, not, not what somebody decided the Bible said. I began to look at the text and look at the contradictions and look at the messiness and look at the, the changing pictures of God and look at the things that you could not stand over and 
and take that seriously. Take it like it was real. Like you should, and not what somebody said about it, not what some pastor said about it, not what some theologian said about it. Take it seriously and see that if you're going to hold to this at all, you're going to have to hold to it in a very different way. Um, and so I, I began, I mean, that journey was essentially from that little evangelical, quite conservative space into, I suppose, like a radical liberation theology, you know, Gustavo Gutierrez and Leonardo Boff and those guys who who saw in the scriptures, you know, who, uh, a God who endlessly, endlessly sided with the outsider. And that for me, I mean, you know, that for me was intuitively true. And then um, you were finding, you were finding activists and you were finding practitioners and writers who were making, could, could we say like a, a theological and an academic case for this? Yeah, I mean, that's true. I was, at, on, one, on one hand, I was doing that. On another hand, I was coming of age in my early 20s in, in Belfast, where there still wasn't a Good Friday Agreement which came, what was that, 1998? So I was 23 when the Good Friday Agreement came. And, right. you know, like, I, you know, I, I lived in a divided society in which, you know, people had been killed year on year, week on week for a long time over these things. And, um, and there, there, it, it was more than just a kind of a, a, an academic theological question. It was like, what, you know, what kind of families, what kind of right. churches, what kind of communities, what kind of streets does, do these theologies bring us? Mm. Uh, and so, I, you know, I was compelled both by my, increasingly open reading of the text, but also by the context I was in to find something new. I'm glad that you're sharing this because it it, it feels like in the States we're we're kind of having a moment. And if you follow certain writers and faith leaders on Twitter or social media, that they're starting to air a lot of these things. One of the things that you articulate is a very universal experience of realizing that Maybe one way of believing or, or being or engaging with a particular faith isn't the only way. And there's a process of shedding these things and then finding new things. And that, that process may be universal, but it's always very particular to the individual and to the location, as you've talked about especially. Um, and I feel like this might be one way in which your book can really resonate with readers because although that's not the theme of the book, it feels like that is the backdrop or like maybe a thematic backdrop to it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, well, thematically the book is about a, a, a pastor who has an affair. So that gives nothing away because <laughs> with three or four pages and you're, you're in the middle of it. So well, it's also, it's also on the back of the book, you know, <laughs> that's also in the description and let's let's talk about that i mean the new you know the new book uh, uh, your first novel which uh, when the last i think the last time i saw you or even maybe was in touch with you via email you said oh and by the way i finished the first draft of my novel and like you had just done it in a day uh which i was super uh, jealous of and the fact that you got this first draft of a novel (laughs) um and we're and the novel's the first day. It's available in the U.S. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. It's Haunt Mifflin, right? It's a publisher. Yeah, Haunt Mifflin Harcourt. Yep. And um, 
as you'll see throughout our conversation, I highly recommend this book. It'll be one of my favorites of the year, and if not uh, in recent years. Um, but you've you've already touched on a little bit of the topic, which the big picture is. It's about a minister who has an affair, and yeah. the ramifications, the consequences of that affair. Do you feel like that's a sufficient summary for us to continue a conversation? Because I don't want to give a lot away, right? I, I, I think there, there's so much about the plot, as I told you before we started recording, that um, as I read the book, I found that like kind of I, I was leaning forward in my seat and my my heartbeat quickened, not because it's a particular, it's not a thriller uh, or anything like that, but there, there were the consequences of our actions uh, or the consequences of the actions of your character were building to what I thought was a very morally and theologically, spiritually, ethically, insert word, uh, profound place. And it, it was a, in a sense that it, and it really delivers in the end. We're not going to go too deep into the plot here, Phil, but I, it, it, we've already said, you know, it's about a minister that has an affair. And I remember if I could say this. I remember that when you were telling me about the novel, you said, and I take that minister and his beliefs and their affairs seriously. And I thought that was very, uh, a very interesting way of putting it. So maybe I, I wonder if you could say a bit about the jumping off point for the novel and maybe where the idea came from or kind of that aha moment where you're like, ah, oh, this, this is the story I want to tell. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a good way of putting it. That That's high... It's the whole idea came out of one character, this this pastor called Samuel Orr, and um, and essentially what I wanted to do was take his faith and his desire equally seriously, and not let one be too easily compromised by the other. So, you know that 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 is that that they that they run in parallel in all the contradiction that it, that entails for as long as is humanly possible until something gives. I didn't know what would give when I started writing, but I, I wanted, you know, I talked a little bit before about um, that, that journey out of that conservative faith into something more spacious. And eventually I think probably, you know, into an even more spacious place right now, essentially where I abandoned the faith of that I grew up with almost entirely, but I could never, or would, I, I'm not prepared to, excuse me, abandon the the language and ideas that are part of that because I think there is an something at the heart of those which is tremendously human, tremendously human, um, and so I wanted to create this character who was deeply flawed, but was unprepared to abandon either his God or his desire. And normally in life, one of those things gives. So, I mean, that was, that was the starting point in many ways for the novel. And so, as you say, let, to not, <laughs> to not push too heavy into plot, which will give a lot away, but, but th- those things eventually will hit against one another, I think. And the question becomes what, what does somebody do then? And f- so for me, not like, and it comes back again to a theological question. Like I, in, in many ways, I don't care what people call their God. I really care what they do with their God. So, you know, um, 
like for me, God is not what you believe in. God is what you worship. You know, lots of people believe in lots of things, but you look at what they do in their lives. You look at what they worship. Look at what they give their authority to, or look at what they give their money to, or look at what they give their time to. That's their God. Like that's what God is, right? Like that's a that's a deeply biblical idea. I'm not I'm not being some kind of communist when I say that. That's, no, there's no there's no heresy here. <laughs> no, like that's 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 and this is a weird thing. Like that's an astonishingly. Um, biblical thing to say, and yet it's very, very problematic when it comes to, <laughs> comes to how, what most of the church will say, or what you know. So there is something so radical about that idea, you know. Um, I think because there is an endless, relentless challenging of where where we put our authority, where we give our authority over to. We're seeing this in very profound ways in the states at the moment. Um, in one element, and then I think we see it around the world and another uh, with um, Advent and Christmas, which is a more global thing um, and the way that people have mistaken one for the other and the ways in which kind of the gods of consumerism and capitalism replace, you know, the God that was born in a stable, um, (laughs) right. That preached uh, kind of a sharing of wealth and, and of kind of letting go of possessions. Um, I think that's a more universal thing thing in america at the moment we're seeing um in politics people who are at at least on the surface seem to be foregoing any sort of faith convictions in order to support their political beliefs um and there there's a very public negotiation taking place whether people want to admit it or not that uh that are illustrate that's illustrating some of the things that you're talking about one of the things that i appreciate about your book and you've already hinted on this a little bit uh, by the way in which you kind of engage a sacred text, for example. It, it feels like the first day in stories like this can help us rediscover the, the humanity of those sacred texts. I'm looking at a character in your book who is deeply flawed but deeply faithful. And those seem to be the characters of our sacred texts and maybe any faith. And there's a certain strand of, of uh, kind of religious community or a certain way of engaging those texts that often downplays that humanity, vulnerability, uh, a, f- a flawed nature at the expense of the actions of the divine, right, or the kind of heightened spirituality. And there's a certain, there's a certain feel to your novel that I think can help us reread some of the texts that we think we might be familiar with and read them in some new ways yeah i, like, I don't know I like if that's that. a question that's just a, that's a comment i don't know <laughs> yeah make of it what you will well i like i like that and i mean fundamentally i like the idea that one text reads another like it's not it you know <laughs> this in many ways is not a religious novel it's not you know it, it certainly doesn't make any explicit religious points and you know pushed hard enough against the wall, my religious convictions would be problematic to many people <laughs> as in not existing. But I think that each, everybody writes within a tradition. Every writer who writes, writes within a tradition. Um, they might be trying to destroy the tradition or they might be trying to uphold it. They might be, they, they might be churning out another version of it, but essentially, you know, there is a, there is a, a body of work that exists before you. And of course, that's how the Bible was written. <laughs> you know, uh, wait, wait, wait. We all know 
No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but the book, these books, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years right. respond to one another. That's what makes them so extraordinary. And Absolutely. and some of them contradict one another, and some of them try to make a point that some of them try to interpret it in a certain way, and others interpret things differently. You know, um, so it's. It, I guess the tradition I'm trying to write in two traditions. One is that religious tradition in which th- that I'm fascinated by, where there is uh, this messy, problematic God who seems to challenge authority everywhere. I mean, you know, like one of my favorite verses in in the Bible is um, I'm sounding very religious. You're making me sound very religious, Ryan. Hey, the older I get, the more I quote scripture. So my wife is afraid that. When I'm like 60 or 65, I'm just going to be walking around drinking and spouting scripture uh, all the time. But I, I find this. I want to. I want to hear what you have to say here. But I do find that the older I get, the way these things haunt me. That this experience of my childhood and being uh, so ingrained with this text is coming up in my life in ways that I never thought it would, and uh, it's it's sometimes funny and sometimes troubling. I'm not sure we call it a haunting. Like I'm sure that's true for me to a certain degree, but it's it's strange or different because I've in many ways I've abandoned this text, right? Like I, I the, the beliefs that I grew up taking out of this about who's in and who's out and what you have to do to be in and what you know, like I they're gone. They don't exist for me anymore. Okay, but the text itself seems to hold these truths that that yes. supersede that. Yes, like when I read when I read Mary's prayer and look where she is celebrating and she says, the humble he hath exalted, the rich he hath sent empty away. Like that's radical philosophy. That's a radical political economy. Like that, yeah. that's, yeah. that. you know, that the God who does that weird. is not, the God who does that is not wanting more business. It's so extraordinarily disruptive of what we think about life that, that it might transform life in a different way. And, and it goes further. So, when you think, I, I can't remember which which um, which epistle it is, but Paul writes, "There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, oh, it's in man and woman." Yeah, Romans. Okay, all are one in Christ. Yeah, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor slave nor free, man and woman, all are one in Christ. Right? How radical a piece of philosophy is that? Who? After that, who gets to say who's what and who's what? Yeah. Who, who, like, where's the in and out there? Yeah. Like, there's nothing radical. No, no political philosopher for me has ever written anything more radical than that. Now, the church took that and just decided, well, actually, you know, we're going to bring those categories back in and we're going to bring a lot more too. That's that's nonsense. Like, yeah. that's not what's there. Uh, also, a- feel free to curse. I feel like you. I feel like you want to curse on this, but you know, this is this is a <laughs> podcast that's for adults. It is bullshit. <laughs> You know, one of the things I appreciate about your book and I've appreciated about talking to you in the past and I think is coming through in this conversation, and I'm, I'm about half a beer in, so I'm going to murder one of these words, but one of the... one of the uh, Half a beer? Yeah, yeah Call well, yourself yeah, an well, American? Come on. Uh, so <laughs> I like how you and the your novel, you don't take the Bible literally you approach it literarily. And I came across this tension or that kind of dichotomy, uh, social media somewhere, somebody made that post, and it's just kind of stuck with me, that, that two ways of looking at the text. And for me... Can I suggest, can I suggest a better way of putting that? Oh, fine. Yes, please. I don't take it literally. I take it seriously. 
Because no, no, I think I think you do take it seriously because I think you take it literarily. I think you take it as a you take it as a as a work of art. And I think to do that, I think the people who take it literally rob it of. uh, And again, this is probably getting into some religious territory that neither one of us really want to be in. Uh, But I think the people who do that rob it of its beauty, of its of the hold that it can have on our lives. Um, and, uh, but unfortunately those voices, uh, and historically have been the loudest. Um, but there is this tradition of taking it literarily as a work of art, as, uh, as a conversation that I think you step into and that certainly your work, um, uh, is a part of. Yeah, I, I think that's true. But the reason why I resist that is that, you know, I take, um, Dickens literarily, the, the difference is that I think that there are truths embedded in what we are calling scripture. Like this is absurd for me to say, I'm, I recognize this as a kind of card carrying sort of atheist. Like there are truths embedded in scripture that are not embedded in Dickens in the same way, because Dickens doesn't have a history of a community of people trying to make sense of themselves and God in the world. Okay. And authority in the world and otherness in the world. Do you know what I mean? So in other words, there is the, the scriptures are different. They're not, in other words, it's not enough to take them literarily. You can see the scriptures as a work of art and think that's fine. Like, that's not what I'm doing. Like, that's not, or it's not only what I'm doing. I'm taking them seriously as in, the danger of only taking something literarily is you can take it or leave it. Like, who really cares? It doesn't really matter. It can, it can be nice, but like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't actually, it doesn't make a difference if you take it or not. It's just it's just another book. I'm saying something different. I'm saying something more problematically radical. I think this holds which that is, has a hold on your life. Or makes not, demands yeah, of you. A hold on my life, yes, of course. But but that it it offers a language of and a space for engaging authority in ways that I've yet to find outside of a better way of doing. Because and, and that the reason is not because I think God inspired people and told them the truth, but because a community of people through thousands of years of history have tried to make sense of their relationship to one another and to what they call God, or they they eventually called God. They used to call them the gods. They like in such an honest way, in such an in, in Jewish tradition, and so in a way that kept alive lots of competing voices and um, that there is a what's the way like truth is a really problematic word here but there is there is an aliveness in that tradition that is different than than simply a literary tradition that's what i that's what i think i'm partly arguing for and i always i almost find it absurd that i'm arguing for that you know um, because I'm not arguing for it as the revelation of God or the, the 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 keys to the kingdom or something that people have to believe to be in. I'm arguing for it as a gen, like as something beyond literary form, tied to it and 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 made beautiful by it, but not simply reducible to it. There are there are deep. And what I might what I might say is there are deep psychoanalytical truths, there are deep psychological truths 
that these texts seem to be able to keep alive that other that I've yet to find in other texts and other religious texts. And and this is why I think that I, I appreciate your insight and the work that you do so much is that you're you're able to you, you kind of joke about being kind of a card carrying atheist or sort of atheist, which I I like that title. But yet you're giving there's this uh, honesty or there's you lend an integrity to these texts, and in the hands of somebody else, a minister who has an affair as a basis of a novel. It becomes something completely different for most writers, I think, who would classify themselves as sort of atheists, right? And I think that's yeah. what makes the work that you do stand out is because you are taking these things seriously and you're taking them literarily um, as yeah. as profound works that still have a hold on our culture and maybe have some uh, role to play in our culture. Yeah. So – yeah. I, yeah. One of the things that I think comes across, and I, I, I might be putting words in your mouth, and I hope not, but it, it feels like this is something that you're drawn to in your work, is this tension between independence and interdependence. And 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 the ways in which that living into both of those and the ramifications that those have, you know, your lead, the lead character, Samuel Orr, who is our pastor, has the freedom, if you will, to have his affair. But the interconnectedness of humanity, our interdependence on one another, that's the truth or that's the reality that com- that comes calling on his life. Yeah. Is that yeah. is that uh is that a tension that that's something you think about? Is that most most hours of most days? <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, because it's a know, theme I, in your film as well, right? I mean, in in, a, in the Good Man, yeah. it's 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 the integral thing is that there's nothing we do that doesn't affect someone somewhere. And I mean, Kierkegaard's great question was, or, or great exploration was, how do you be an individual? How do you stand on your own before God? And you know. Fear and Trembling is a book about that, um, an extraordinary book about that, the impossibility of standing in your own before God without something else in the way. Some You put your church in the way, you put your dogmas in the way, you put your beliefs in the way, something else has to stand in. But to stand on your own before God, and I mean, Sartre took this up, you know, 100 years later, Sartre took this and talked about the impossibility of standing on one's own before the meaninglessness of the universe. <laughs> like... Kierkegaard was the father of existentialism. It was, they replaced the terms, but essentially the problem was the same. How do you be an individual? How do you not have somebody else decide for you what the, who's in and out, what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, right. how to live, how not to live? How, like Even for Freud, like desire, desire is not something you decide. Desire is something you inherit. Desire is something you inherit before you even have a language. You, you, by the time you have a language... Your, your patterns of desire are already predetermined. How, how then do you become, like, what does it mean to be an individual? I, I, of course I'm obsessed with that. And the secondary question naturally comes that you're implying, which is, why be an individual? <laughs> like, right. what, you know, <laughs> what, what, where is the value there? Like, 
And the problem for me is that one, you have to be an individual to have relationships. So like to have real relationships that have intimacy and autonomy where two people genuinely meet and one is not in the shadow of another, or one is not being um, overpowered by another. To have those, to have real relationships, you have to be an individual. But it's very, very hard to do. Like, yeah, I think the novel explores. The novel is exploring again. I'm aware of making it sound like a novel of ideas, and I think you've done very well to to alert people that that's not really the case. It's not filled with lots of ideas, although there are ideas in there. But essentially, it's filled with characters doing things. But they're doing things in attempts to work out how to be how to be who they are like what does it mean to be me well um, actually what is it you're right i mean i i think you're it is it's full of care i mean you can you can we could pick you know there are four central characters and really key characters and they're all reckoning with uh a, an event or an action in their life that they that they've either either chosen to do or that has has had some sort of effect on them um but yeah. you do have a character like like samuel who is also um engaging scripture and actively using it and you as a writer are putting words into his mouth or thoughts into his head and you have anna who's a beckett scholar you know uh and all that that carries with it so uh, again as, as you said and not to uh, and to put a clear point on it for the audience that it is a very it's a thrilling read even though it's not a thriller right it is moved forward by action um but there are moments i and i wanted to say to you there are moments where i would put the book down so i could think about either what just happened or a reflection that one of the characters had and Mm. that's rare um and if i you know I, i read a review of your book that you know, somebody talked about reading it in a day, and I didn't. But when I wasn't reading it, I was thinking about those characters, um, either because of mm. the choices they had made, what I was worried that they were going to do, or, again, because of, of some of the words that you put in their heads or in their mouths. We, we've talked a little bit about consequences, the actions that people take, uh, events that happen that have a bearing on us or that have an effect on us. And as I was thinking about your book and some of the, you know, some of our conversation today, I just, I had a list of notes and one line of that note of those notes is just one word and it's hypocrisy. And that's not what your book is about at all, but it feels like a natural reaction to your lead character who is a pastor who has an affair, but wants to continue in his role as pastor. And, and and maybe I wrote that down because, as I've said, we are surrounded in the States by hypocrites. I mean, we're everywhere. There are hypocrites everywhere. But uh, if, if you were here and watching the news, it's, it's just in your face nonstop. And I wonder if, if you hear that word in relation to your lead character, to your novel, how, uh, where does that take you? That's a that's a good question. I mean, I don't. I don't think he's a hypocrite. Like I think um, this commitment to to his faith, maybe even less his faith, but to his God and to his desire are paramount. And he refuses to abandon for as long as he can. He refuses to abandon either. But he he also bears the consequences of those. He doesn't hide from himself. I don't think 
excessively. And he, like, I think he's a problematic character. And in many ways, in a funny kind of way, he's not the lead character. <laughs> we've talk, It's funny because we've talked about him partly because we don't want to give plot points away. But, like, the, the lead character really in the novel is not him. It's somebody who is, uh, who has been affected by him and oh. affected in just about every way. So there is a, I mean, I'm, I think there is there is a sufficient level of self awareness in in or to to make him take upon himself. Like there's a line earlier on. I'm not giving too much away here. It's about the affair, but where one of the gifts he gives to Anna, who's having the affair with is whatever else he gives there he doesn't put upon her the guilt that i think uh you know people in that situation often do where they're resting with themselves if there's a guilt to be felt or takes it into himself that's a great that is a great point and i think that echoes some of your conversation about othering right our inability to reckon with our own actions and our own selves I mean, there's almost no relationships that exist that don't have projection of some kind where something somebody is feeling and they don't like they're feeling it, so they make somebody else feel it for them or they say that somebody else is feeling it. Like and, that's and you know, that's not the case with with these two characters, though. It's not. It's not. It's not the case with either of them. And I think there's a, you know, like that's not to excuse or, or it's not. I think he's a really problematic character. I, you know, I... I both like and dislike him at the same time. So I, I'm not, there's nothing heroic, like just to, 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 to make it clear about, or I don't think, right. But that's not to say I, yeah, there's I not agree. an interesting value in what he does. And, and for me, the, inter- the, the, the more interesting thing was what, as again, trying not to give too much away, but what the implications of what his life, he may well have messed his life up in ways that are, or problematic, but maybe, you know, maybe that's not the right way of putting it, but he certainly has done things that have cost tremendous amounts to a number of people. I'm interested in what other people then do with the, the inheriting that. Um, and, and, and there's a couple of characters who do quite different things eventually with that. Um, so, so for me, um, Again, you started the question being about hypocrisy. I, I don't know that there's an awful lot about hypocrisy in the book. I don't. I don't think there's an awful lot. Of, there's very many characters who are being hypocritical in many ways. Maybe what's unusual about the book is that most characters are quite direct. Um, perhaps, well, I don't know if that is that true. I don't that's know. I, I, I think uh, I, I don't. Again, I want to reiterate. I don't think your book is about that, and that's not the defining uh, characteristic or theme that I would jump to, uh, and sharing this with people. Um, but as I was just kind of thinking through some of the stuff, you certainly give us the opportunity to talk about that. Right. Because it, very rarely do I, we have people like in our public spaces who are found guilty of whatever indiscretion, let's just say, um, we're, and we're always quick to say, well, they're being so hypocritical because they preach this one thing and then they do another but you know we don't ever see Sam preaching fidelity. Um, Samuel preaching fidelity. Um, yeah, he is living his life in a way where it feels like 
fidelity to anything other than God doesn't matter. You know, but he's so like, yeah, like I think he's so, um, God for him is not a series of propositions. It's an aliveness, like energy. Like I felt or God for or was an energy inside him that he had to, he had to pay attention to. Like he had to, like, there's a bit early on in the novel where it talks about mystics as these people who experience God in such a that's right in such a visceral, actual way that there's no there's nothing in between them and God. Like there's no doctrines or religions or anything. The mystics were people who just God was just alive inside them, and so they howled like wolves, you know, or cried like babies. But for that, like. And Orr is both skeptical of those people, and yet he knows he can't, like, there's something of him in that. Like, there's something of his idea of God. God is, he loves the scriptures, but God has is alive in a way that's more problematic to Orr. Um, and that, and, and so it's not hypocritical. Like, or I don't think Orr ever uses God or his position to hide from something. That, no. for me, is a version of I think it it feels like it draws him out. It feels like it draws him out into the world in a way that, like you say, other people use it to run away from or hide from. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I don't know what to do with Thor. Like, even at the end of the novel, I don't know what to do with Thor. I I reread the last chapter today, and I don't either. And that's okay. Like, I'm okay with that, I think. (laughs) Maybe I won't be in a while, but I I think I am. I think as a a reader – you should be totally fine with it because you leave you leave us with this experience that it may take it, this feels like a book that I could reread in 10 years and it would feel completely different or 20 years and yeah. because it reckons like with things that I'm not I don't have children um uh I haven't experienced a betrayal like that I, I have I, I don't think <laughs> that I've uh, enacted a betrayal like that. I, at least I, I hope I haven't. You know, so uh, it, but it feels like something that life can shape the way we engage with it. So one of my sort of heroes at the moment in terms of literature is Henry James. I'm, I've become obsessed with Henry James, huh. great American novelist who mostly wrote European novels or novels yeah. set in Europe. Yeah, but. What he did, or what he what he did, was pay attention to the minutiae of people's lives, people's interior lives, in such a way that it didn't matter to an extent whether I had experienced what they they had experienced, but that he takes so seriously the their internal life, the contradict, and even the contradictions between their external life and the internal life, and he gives he he gives such beauty to the language of description and by that i don't mean that it's aesthetically pleasing i mean that it it's the right language the the metaphors are the right metaphors so that there is a richness that that even though i have not been you know um, a prince married to a beautiful english woman who's not sure what to do about her dad and and will never be right. and yet when i read that story such is the attention to to the inner life and the generosity of attention and the generosity of metaphor that, that it will bear repeated reading because there is a repeated richness that you're watching characters try to work out how to be responsible to one another in the world, how to be, 
how to be individual, yes, right. how, to, how to handle mystery, all those things. And, and because the language, like, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I've written a Henry James novel. I really haven't, and I'm quite aware that I haven't. But that, that as, as, a, as, a, as a beacon out there of what can be done with literature, and, sure. and essentially sure. it's both realism, but because it's about real things but it's not just realism because realism describes stuff that happens a lot of what henry james does is speculative what goes on inside someone's head so that's not realism in a traditional sense it's certainly not realism um in in a reductionist sense there's but there's something so alive and so beautiful about taking that seriously and allowing the complexity of the way our our minds work and our bodies work there's just something beautiful about taking that seriously enough and so i mean again i'm not saying i've done that but what i've tried to do in this novel is to do that so i've tried to allow characters to exist within their own complexity well i think you do that um and it's certainly the strength uh, a strength of the of the work we're, we're talking about character and we're talking about choices and oftentimes when you're in, engaging texts like this a setting can be a character as well, and that may be a simplistic kind of thing to say, but um, you, you made a choice of where to set this story, and it starts in Ireland, and it ends in America and in New York, and I wonder if, for you, was there was there a reason why it did that? I know that you spent quite a bit of time in the States, and I've, I've seen you here in both Austin and LA and I wonder if is there anything for you kind of worth uh, visiting or talking about and that uh, with that theme of the book or that aspect of the of the work um yeah the the New York setting it moves from Belfast to New York and that wasn't accidental I mean I spent some time in New York and so I developed a kind of familiarity and even love of the city um but also, I think the book is, as I think I hinted at earlier, partly exploring what it means to be free. And America is the great country of freedom, you know, like the the idea of freedom is so deeply embedded in the, the cultural psyche of America and in the idea America has about itself. Um, and yet there's a there's a contradiction in freedom to be absolutely free is to be alone. Um, you know, to be free entirely from all responsibilities and connections and relationships and so on feels like a really bad idea of freedom. And yet, you know, I think it's, so I think freedom is a complicated thing. And I think that the, the outworking of it in American culture is increasingly problematic. Um, How do you mean? Freedom has come to me like, <laughs> like what should be free? Is it everyone should be free to do whatever they want, whenever they want? And what does that leave? Should capital be free to move wherever it wants? Should people be free to be allowed to die on the streets because there's no health care? Um, you know, like freedom and community are not easy bedfellows. Right. And I, I love freedom. 
like I am, you know, I think part of the obsession in this novel is that I, <laughs> I feel myself rightly or wrongly to be very much trying to be an individual. And I'm obsessed with the, like, I, I you know, I, I've lived being very personal about it. I've lived quite a individual life of, of largely on my terms um, to a certain degree. And yet no satisfaction has ever come on my own <laughs> by just doing that. You know, no satis, you know, there is the satisfactions that come in life are satisfactions that are connected to other people. They're connected to love. They're connected to community and friendships. They're connected to shared experiences. Uh, You know, the most beautiful meal you could ever have. If you're having that on your own, it's not the same as some shitty burger with great friends. I don't think you are. I think you're dead on. And, and so freedom, it, I'm free to be free to, to do whatever one wants and to be fr- free to have all the money you want, etc. Like when you build a society around that or a company around that or, or a life around that, that seems that seems to ask as many questions as it answers. I and I, so, I think that you when you talk about America as this place of freedom um, and that kind of being maybe an underlying theme or a thread in your in your novel it's fascinating to me these days that uh there's a certain segment of america of americans who want to view america as a christian nation but want to do so based on this idea of freedom and i would say as someone who struggles to call myself a christian i struggle to call myself a christian because i do not feel completely free I feel that there is a call placed on my life to give a shit about other people. And that is not freedom. I am bound by responsibility to, to others. Um, that I think a, an idea of kind of complete freedom, uh, that doesn't place on my life, right? I agree. And it's not even just responsibility to others. I mean, I think there is responsibility. I get that. Although... I bristle at responsibility. So what I'm saying is even at a, at a more basic level, it's not, it's not that we should be around people because we're responsible for them. It's because there's no satisfaction if we're not, you know? Well, like, no, no, of course. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like that, that it's a misunderstanding that what we're being sold is this idea that selfishness and, and wealth and, and to be on one's own doing what one wants is where, some kind of freedom lies and it's, it's just not it's not true well they've never been true you you make a great point in clarifying what i was saying is that I, you know responsibility is one word and and relationship friendship companionship might be another right i mean i think i think you and i have a mutual friend and or at least acquaintance in trip fuller um who has the yes. homebrew christianity podcast and he and i were talking about another film a couple of weeks ago and he he made this comment that there is no concept uh, or there was no concept in early Christianity of 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 the Messiah or of salvation or of a relationship with you know Christ, whatever. You, however, you would like to refer to that without friendship. Um, yeah, and that you couldn't be a follower of Jesus without being a friend of Jesus and a friend to others. And I think that's probably a bit more about what you're getting at about that idea of relationship and sharing the. Even the worst meal with friends can be 
a sacramental or transformative or or just quite simply better it's a place of aliveness i mean there, there's a question to ask is what when we talk about freedom is it is it something that brings more aliveness yeah because a lot great. of times when i that's i was in great. america a lot of times i heard the word freedom it, it wasn't describing aliveness no freedom my to carry God, no no it uh, is it is the to me it is the most oppressive uh it's manifesting itself in ways that are sickening in the states that that it is oppression because you have to act a certain way and be a certain way or say the right things or wear the right things. And it's, it's problematic. I agree. And I think, so for me, the, the novel being the second half of the novel being said in New York, I mean, that, you know, that that's making it carry a lot more than I was thinking at the time I was, I was living there. I, I thought it was a good setting for what I was trying to explore. But I, I think partly thematically I, I I'm, and I remain interested in what constitutes freedom for self, you know, what for, for one another and for myself. What when I talk about wanting to be free, what am I what do I really mean by that? And I want that, to say that's a question. I, and I want to say, too, for people who are listening to this that may not have read the novel and who may be interested in doing so, that the shift in location is not jarring whatsoever. It's a very natural transition. So to, to talk about that is I don't want to add more to it i'm not trying to put more on it thematically or uh yeah but it is a very natural transition um so as uh, you know narratively that works uh, very well but you know it was a choice to put it there and not anywhere else quite frankly yeah so phil i really appreciate you talking through some of these uh themes i wonder what is on the horizon for you um with your work because uh, obviously you're a filmmaker you're this now this uh, critically acclaimed novelist, I can say that. Um, <laughs> what's what, what's on the horizon for you creatively? Um, I'm working another novel right now. I'm I'm deep in it, so to speak. It's uh, it's a novel about a family that fractures around certain memories. I suppose that's the easiest way to put it, but it's <clears throat> essentially, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, and I don't, I, I suppose all artists are to a certain degree, but I'm interested in, particularly in this novel I'm working on, how people hide from themselves, uh, how we all hide from ourselves in various ways, and the the dangers that that, that poses to, to the relationships and to our and to our sense of ourselves, so um, it's a novel that will probably it's set in Ireland originally, but it'll probably move locations again. I'm interested in these juxtapositions, as you've kind of seen in a few different things I've done. Right. I think I think I mean I'm, you know the form of that gives you a chance to to push people into different spaces and see how they react you know so there's something about that that i i, I seem to keep repeating um that i'm interested in um so yeah i'm working on that i'm hoping gosh i don't know when that'll be finished but uh i was gonna say i'm enjoying it i think that might be an overstatement but it's a <laughs> it feels like a valuable enough process and i'm make i'm you know i'm i'm well it's already longer than the first novel the first day it's uh it's going to be a bigger bigger book um so hopefully next year i'll finish that uh, after that i don't know 
I'd like to do some film again, perhaps. I guess I'll find more ways to ask these questions. And hopefully in hopefully both independently and in community with other people. I hope that this second novel comes to you quickly um, because I want to read it so I can talk to you more about all these things. <laughs> I have to say publicly, yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, you're, you're one of, uh, you're one of my favorite people to talk to about um, all of the themes that we've talked about and more and, uh, such a fan of your work and I really do appreciate you taking the time to chat about this stuff and um, you know I look forward to sharing more about this book and and your work uh, through the website and through this interview and I just I wish you the best of luck with the book I know it's uh, it's been out for just a little bit but um, it's one that I, it's one that I feel like should make people's uh, top 10 list for the year how does that sound well, sounds all right to me. It's a funny. Yeah. It's funny. You put a you put a book out, and it 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 has a life of its own. And to be honest, you know, I, I don't pay. I'm being honest here. I don't pay a lot of attention to how it sells or where. I believe you 100 percent. By the way, I believe you know, like that. this is. It doesn't get better if it does well. It doesn't get worse if it doesn't. It's just it's a, the same words on the same pages. So, <laughs> but um. Yeah, I, I like I'm re- I'm proud of it. Um, I'm excited to see what happens with it, and and like it's it's encouraging to hear you're very generous with your praise and your encouragement because it's a such a it, it's such a solitary pursuit. Sometimes you know you you're trying to make something and you don't know. When I was writing this, I had no idea if anyone would ever publish it. You know, to get to this stage, you're trying to make sense of something. You're trying to give form to something. So. Um, so I'm very, very appreciative of uh, uh, of the generosity of your encouragement as well. So um, it well, means a lot. It's easily given. So everybody, the novel is the first day. It's been uh, Phil Harrison has been speaking with us about it and and all things life and spirit and all that. And to remind everybody, it's the novel, the first day by Phil Harrison. It's available. You can find it. Uh, anywhere books are sold, uh, you can find it on Amazon. It is worth reading. Um, I know a lot of you out there listening are going to have some time off over the holidays in the next couple of weeks. Put the, put this at the top of your reading list. Phil, thanks for being with us, and I look forward to chatting with you about your future projects soon, hopefully. Yes, yeah. very much. No so pressure. Thanks. That's right. <laughs> really appreciate it. <laughs>